This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Save the date for the grand reopening on May 14th and 15th after the most extensive and transformative renovation in its nearly 200-year history. It's your history museum, your story. Details at virginiahistory.org. Welcome to episode five of season six of the How We Got Here podcast. I'm your friend on this journey, Rachel DePampa, investigative journalist for NBC 12 in Richmond, as well as for the national television outlet, Investigate TV. I've got a little news for you. There was a story that we were going to include in this episode from a guest we love, and it just got to be so interesting and so long You are now getting a bonus episode at the end of this season. But don't worry, this is a jam-packed episode five. This week, we are unraveling the mystery of Pocahontas, bringing you the early threads of the civil rights movement, and going inside the house where Lee met Grant. We are turning back the clock on the week of April 4th through the 10th. I will permit no man to narrow and degrade my soul by making me hate him. I have learned that success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life, as by the obstacles which he has overcome while trying to succeed. Sometimes, the words of the person we are about to feature truly are the best way to start a segment. It was this week in history, April 5th, 1856, that renowned educator Booker T. Washington was born. At least, that's the date we've come to accept. It's written on his tombstone. Oftentimes, we we don't really have a firm record when it comes to enslaved folks and and their date of their birth. We can kind of estimate or kind of deduce from the records we have available. But April 5th, 1856 is the date that we, we go to and use for Booker T. Washington. At one point in his life, Booker T. Washington was the most famous African American in the United States. He rose to great heights because of his determination and his resolve and you know his take and his view on civil rights, his view on what it meant to be African-American in the United States. And it put him in the spotlight. And that's the voice of a returning guest this season. Brittany Hutchinson is back to talk Booker. She's a curator at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I started out in museum education uh, for a number of years in community engagement. And then um, in 2017, I made the jump to curatorial. So I've worked a few different places and sort of gotten some great experience. And now I'm, you know, here. And in April of 1856, Booker Tolliver Washington was born on the tobacco plantation of James Burroughs, a small planter. He's born into slavery in Franklin County, Virginia. His mother was a cook who worked in the plantation house. 
and his father was an unknown white man. He and his mother lived in a one-room log cabin with a fireplace, which also served as the plantation's kitchen. In Virginia, as in most states at the time, the child of an enslaved woman also became enslaved. At an early age, Booker was put to work carrying 100-pound sacks of grain to the plantation's mill. Hard work for such a small boy. He said he was beaten on occasion for not performing his duties well enough. Near the plantation, there was a school, and that was Booker's first exposure to education. He wrote about looking in the windows and seeing children his age, sitting at desks and reading books. At the time, it was illegal to teach enslaved people to read and write. Once his family was freed after the Civil War, they moved to West Virginia. He was about nine years old at that time. So the first, the sort of formative years of his life, he was a Virginian and sort of raised in Virginia. And once his mother and his siblings moved to West Virginia, his mother married a free black man and sort of his life took on from there. Though freed, they were too poor to even consider schooling for Booker. His younger years, being enslaved and seeing his mother, seeing his siblings and, ha and having that direct lived experience, I think informed his politics throughout the rest of his life. There's sort of a, a famous rivalry of sorts with W.B. Du Bois and, and sort of their issues and their, their clashing um, because W.B. Du Bois was born free. So he didn't have that same reference point that Booker T. Washington had. We will get to that famous rivalry later, but as Brittany points out, it's important to understand how living enslaved and then becoming free shaped his world. And I think for him to understand and to become sort of an advocate for education and literacy and building one sort of awareness of the world was part of a realization of how much was taken or not allowed or not granted to African-Americans who were enslaved. And that was something that I think connects back to his childhood. At nine years old in West Virginia, Booker went to work in the nearby salt furnaces with his stepfather. His mother noticed his interest in learning and got him a book. And that's where he learned the alphabet and how to read and write basic words. He got up nearly every morning at 4 a.m to practice and study before heading off to work. Around this time, Booker took the first name of his stepfather as his last name, Washington. When he was 16 years old, Booker T. Washington left home and he walked 500 miles to Hampton Normal Agricultural Institute in Virginia. Yes, he would walk 500 miles. And I know that song is also stuck in your head right now. And you know, that was not uncommon. People walked <laughs> very far, especially after slavery. You have to think about the fact that, you know, families are being separated from each other and, you know, people are being ripped apart from, from who they know and they're, you know, sent into other parts of the country that are completely unknown to them. So people walking to reconnect with their families, to, in, in Washington's case, to attend college and, and to attend university, 
is not unheard of at all. So absolutely, he walked 500 miles <laughs> to Hampton, where he was a, a fantastic student. And of course, Hampton being historically black college, uh, university, that was something that, again, his drive to become educated and his resolve to do this was really made possible by the fact that these institutions, HBCUs, existed. Because you really couldn't, in most cases, get into another university because of segregation, because of racism. And because he was so dedicated to education, of course, 500 miles is what he's going to do to get to Hampton. He's going to walk 500 miles. Along the way, he took odd jobs to support himself. And once he got there, he convinced administrators to let him attend the school and took a job as a janitor to pay for tuition. The school's founder and headmaster, General Samuel C. Armstrong, eventually offered Booker a scholarship, sponsored by a white man. Armstrong was a commander of a Union African-American regiment during the Civil War and was a strong supporter of providing newly freed enslaved people with an education. Armstrong would eventually become Booker's mentor. Booker graduated from Hampton in 1875. First, he becomes a, a teacher at Hampton, a fantastic role model for students. Later on, he's referred to a position as a principal for a new school in the South in Alabama, and that's Tuskegee. And the original name of the school was the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, which is now Tuskegee University. It was General Armstrong who referred Booker. Armstrong was asked to recommend a white man to run the school, but instead, he offered up Booker. The first classes were held in an old church while Washington traveled all over the countryside, promoting the school and raising money. In 1881, you know, he's 25 years old, <laughs> and he's a, a young person and he goes down to Alabama. He hires George Washington Carver to teach at Tuskegee. The first classes at Tuskegee had about 30 students. Today, it currently enrolls more than 3,000 people. He does all these great things and set up, sets up this really fantastic enclave of protection and safety and education in Alabama that he becomes the most renowned educator and intellectual of his day. He's, he is the guy when it comes to sort of sharing and speaking and sort of educating about the Black experience in the United States. Booker quickly gained notoriety. He's giving speeches and being asked to speak about his life and beliefs. I've read stories about his sense of humor, how he was a really funny, personable guy. And that's something that, you know, you want to learn about this, these historical figures is that who were they when they weren't sort of changing history and making history, you know, in their downtime and a regular occurrence and a regular engagement with them. But having a sense of humor, having this way about him, I think made him such a, a, an important person. It opened quite a few doors for him. What Brittany's describing here is his charisma. He was friends with like Queen Victoria, friends with the Rockefellers. It's just, 
amazing what he was able to accomplish. He moved in such a way that was so prolific in his ability to sort of appeal to folks and very powerful people. He was able to do what he did. He's the first African-American invited to the White House. Teddy Roosevelt invites him to have dinner. This is early 1900s. This is, you know, post reconstructs Jim Crow at the, you know, the one of the most tumultuous times in our history. And it ruffles quite a few feathers to see this African-American man dining in the White House with the president. He also worked with William Taft, William Howard Taft, after Teddy Roosevelt. He was this, you know, advisor on racial issues in the United States. He became, you know, the voice for an entire people for a period of time that was so important to have because, again, you know, at this point, we're thinking about what it meant to sort of restore the Black community, to, to build this community of folks who originally the forefathers didn't imagine becoming citizens, right? And so to have Booker T. Washington situated in such a way that he's able to engage with these very powerful people in our country really becomes, I think, one of the the pivotal points in his life is that he's not only able to educate other African-Americans, but he's able to speak and share that story to white Americans and everyone in the country about what needs to happen and how we can sort of heal some of the wounds and begin the work of becoming a united nation. Brittany says Booker was not without his detractors. He was often called the great accommodator, even by other African-Americans. It's because he advanced ideas that African-Americans should compromise and acquiesce to segregation. He never publicly condemned forced segregation, but he secretly contributed funds to the legal fight against it. His public and private thoughts were a great source of tension between Booker and activist W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois was working as a professor at Atlanta University. He openly deplored Booker's tone and philosophy. This rivalry was such an important part of this story. Booker T. Washington was someone who really spoke against some civil rights activity, even if what he did was very much aligned with civil rights. He was almost an advocate for get an education, do your work, you know, save your money, become economically stable, and leave the sort of the protest alone, right? Don't rock the boat too much. And I think that comes from, you know, his experience as an enslaved person. I think that that really kind of shifted him throughout his life of just, okay, well, here's what we can do. Rocking the boat might be a little too much. People start to shift on him a little bit towards the end of his life because of that rhetoric. He falls out of favor. Newer, younger activists like Du Bois seize the day. I think as the tide shifted, as people realized that there was more that they could ask for, there's more that they should ask for and should receive as equal citizens. He's not seen as going far enough. He's not calling for equal rights. He's not calling for what we consider now like civil rights. He's just calling for a peaceful life with education and and a good job. Very valuable, but He wasn't someone who advocated for political activity and political rights and and, and voting and things like that. Even though he was someone who was in the political sphere of the country, 
he, he wasn't an advocate for those things, uh, at least not in the way that other folks were. It's a slow, gradual build. Even if it sort of rushes to the forefront, by the time that W.B. Du Bois is sort of gaining his popularity, becoming you know, an intellectual out of Harvard and making a name for himself, the old guard of Booker T. Washington's politics starts to wane. And I think we see some of that that happens even now where we have the activists and protesters of the 1960s. Some of them are against the protests that happened in 2020, right? It's just a generational, um, a generational difference. And, you know, he didn't necessarily shift with the times. Once W. Du Bois came around, he was, you know, new. He was with the, the current rhetoric, the academic ideas. He was representing the next phase of consciousness for Black rights and Black freedom that Booker T. Washington didn't necessarily buy into. As Booker gets older, his ideas were no longer radical. Instead of the age-old story, the younger radical comes in and, and says things that are absolutely shocking to the old guard and to the, the established former radicals. Washington was a radical at a point in his career and in his life, but as the society shifted, he was no longer a radical. He was part of the establishment, right? It's the age-old tale. <laughs> the younger folks come in and shake the table a little harder in a little different way. The older established folks are, are not necessarily willing to shift and, and to, to give with the times. It's such a perfect tale to look back at in 2022. Absolutely, right? The protests that my grandparents and parents were involved in are much different from the ones that my generation engages in and, and the ways that we understand protests and the ways we understand what it means to resist. The concepts around what protest looks like has shifted, where we understand that it's not an act of violence per se, but protest is really an act of frustration and passion and caring about the lives of yourself and your your fellow man, your fellow you know people, and sometimes that shows up in ways that are uncomfortable. But in order to change, you have to be a little uncomfortable, and not everyone wants to be uncomfortable, and and we understand that. But I think that's you know the way things just kind of go. There's a debate in academia even now as to where the groundwork was laid for the civil rights movement of the 1960s. But there's a, a long form version that begins very, very early. Some people would even argue the Underground Railroad is part of that. The color conventions, which happen and they're popping up in the 1830s of free blacks talking about the institution of slavery, that's sort of part of civil rights. So Booker T. Washington certainly plays a pivotal role in development of the consciousness of what becomes the civil rights movement much later between he and W. Du Bois. Like there are these two powerhouses that lay the groundwork for what we consider, you know, the classic civil rights movement. And also even in, in some cases, the black power movement. Booker T. Washington had a huge impact on the next intellectuals that would come up and change the country. So I would argue that if he's not considered one of the early leaders of the civil rights movement or the, the folks who lay in that groundwork, he's certainly one of the architects. Booker Tolliver Washington died of heart failure November 14, 1915, at his home in Alabama near the university he built. 
he was actually pretty young. He was only 59 years old. And I'm sure years of stress and fighting the good fight certainly took its toll. Tuskegee was his legacy. Even as his popularity waned, what Tuskegee became and what it still is today is such an important part of the American story and American history. April 5th, 1856. Booker T. Washington was born into slavery in Franklin County, Virginia. Over 59 years, he used that life circumstance to teach others, turning him into a great educator, philanthropist, and speaker, at one time saying, you can't hold a man down without staying down with him. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where digital resources reach nearly 4 million people yearly and collections of more than 130 million items tell the stories of Virginians. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Appomattox. The most significant surrender in American history. To many Americans, the name of this small Virginia town is synonymous with the end of the Civil War. But what happened in a house nearly 160 years ago marked the beginning of the end for the Confederacy. April 9th, 1865. People say, oh, if you could go back in time, where would you go? People usually say Gettysburg, you know, if they're into Civil War, they'll say, I'd go to Gettysburg. Well, I'd go to Appomattox and I'd want to be in that room when this meeting took place. It lasts about an hour and a half. And altogether, we got about 10 minutes of accounts (laughs) to tell us what was going on. So I'd wish I could see everything that transpired in that room at Wilmer McLean's home in Appomattox Courthouse. Before we get to that room were two legends of the Civil War. General Ulysses S. Grant and General Robert E. Lee came face to face. We must talk about our first-time guest telling this remarkable tale. My name's Patrick Schroeder. I'm the historian at Appomattox Courthouse National Historical Park. He started working there during the summers back in 1986. I worked there for eight summers doing uh, Living History, part of the Living History program. I worked at Patrick Henry's home for five years in Brookneal, Virginia. I started writing and publishing Civil War books, doing tours, and in 2001, the park historian retired, and I was hired as the new park historian in 2002. He's published multiple books on Appomattox, including one on all the myths of that day, which we hope to help him dispel. We are thrilled Patrick talked to us for this podcast. Yeah, I'm curious to see how you work all your magic when we're done with this. <laughs> magic, here we come. Before we get to the actual surrender, we need to set up how we got to that moment in the Civil War. It's April 1st, 1865. 
every major battle is happening in Virginia. The Commonwealth is engulfed in war. The Confederate capital, Richmond, is about to fall. The 10-month siege of Petersburg is finally ending. Commander of the Union Army, Ulysses S. Grant, and Confederate Commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, Robert E. Lee, are in one last dance. Grant starts to go after the Confederate right flank, moving troops around to Grant's left. It culminates in a battle called Five Forks, where General Pickett's division is defeated. And this gives access to the federal troops to the Southside Railroad. This is the last railroad line supplying Lee's army. So now that they've cut it off, Grant orders an assault on Petersburg, against Petersburg on April 2nd, and drives Lee's army out of Petersburg. Now you gotta remember Lee's lines ran all the way from Richmond down through Bermuda 100 and around Petersburg and then west to Dinwiddie County. So you're talking about the 35 mile front. So Lee has to concentrate his army and he chooses to concentrate the army at Amelia Courthouse, which is about equal distant, about 30 miles from Richmond, 30 miles from Petersburg. General Lee's hoping to get resupplied and head south on the Richmond-Danville Railroad to link up with Joseph Johnston's Confederate Army in North Carolina. That is the plan, but it doesn't go altogether too well because General Grant is a little different than the opponents that Lee had faced earlier in the war because Grant moves troops to the south of Lee when he is concentrating at Amelia Courthouse. There's no rations there to feed Lee's army. He's waiting for troops to come from Richmond. And when they head south on April 5th, they run into federal troops blocking his line of retreat at a place called Jetersville. Lee opts not to fight. Instead, he tries to get around Grant's army, which forces Lee to move west. The next day is not a good day for Lee's army. A good portion of it gets trapped in an area called Sailor's Creek, and this is the largest engagement during the campaign. Lee ends up suffering about 8,000 men killed, wounded, and mostly captured. So that's about a fifth of Lee's army. He also loses 10 generals and one uh, Commodore as well, who is in command of the Naval Battalion that has come out of the ships docked at Richmond. Lee's troops make it to Farmville, they are desperately in need of rations to feed the starving army. They head south. Grant's troops, once again, are able to stop Lee's army from getting fed. They have to close up the trains and move north and west of the Appomattox River. And there's some fighting around Farmville at a place called Cumberland Church. And this is when Lee starts to see the writing on the wall. It's now April 7th. The actual correspondence between General Grant and General Lee begins. Federal surgeon, Dr. Smith, that is a cousin of Richard Yule, who meets him after Richard Yule's been captured at Salish Creek. And Yule told him that he thought Lee would surrender if Grant asked him to. Dr. Smith goes to Grant, tells him what Yule had said. And at five o'clock on April 7th, Grant writes a letter to General Lee asking for the surrender of his army. It takes four hours for that letter to reach General Lee, who is across the Appomattox River. Lee gets a letter, he reads it, he gives it to his right-hand man, who is James Pete, nicknamed Pete Longstreet. 
Longstreet reads a letter from Grant and says, not yet. Lee feels it is his duty to respond, so he writes back to Grant and wants to know what kind of terms is he going to get if he wishes to surrender the army. That's because Grant has a famous nickname at this time. He's known as Unconditional Surrender Grant. Because out at the Battle of Fort Donelson, he demanded unconditional surrender. He was ready to move on the Confederate word. That name stuck since his initials were U.S. for Ulysses Simpson. Unconditional surrender fit right in. That's because Grant met with President Lincoln and General Sherman a week earlier. On March 28th at City Point on the boat, the River Queen, Lincoln had set out his plans for the end of the war and making the Southern soldiers United States citizens again. And in fact, he told Grant to let these Confederate soldiers up easy because he wanted to get the country back together. Grant is not going to be unconditional surrender Grant. He is going to try to help get the country back together again. They write letters again on April 8th, but Lee is not ready to surrender. His army is headed toward Appomattox Station, three miles from Appomattox Courthouse. And at the station, there's going to be food to feed Lee's army somewhere between 120,000 and 300,000 rations, new uniforms, ammunition, everything the army needs is being brought out of Lynchburg by train. It is a rather quiet day on April 8th compared to other days. It's mainly marching, no fighting early in the day. But the Federals have secretly split up their army at Farmville. Some headed southwest, some headed northwest. He's affecting what you would call a pincers movement to come together right near Appomattox Courthouse. General Sheridan has dispatched a 25-year-old major general named George Armstrong Custer with his cavalry division to capture the supplies at Appomattox Station. The Federals knew to do this because some of its soldiers dressed up in Confederate uniforms and infiltrated the Confederate Army. They figured out the trains were at Appomattox Station. And Custer's men arrived at the station at about 4 o'clock and captured the three train loads of supplies. There was a fourth train coming in that escaped, but they left their cars because the uh, train was pushing the cars. And when it saw the Federals, it reversed and broke the coupling. The engine escaped back to Lynchburg, but all the supplies were left there at Appomattox Station. For Custer's men. Once they secure the station, they start to receive artillery fire from Reuben Lindsey Walker, who had attended the Virginia Military Institute. He is with the reserve artillery about a mile from Appomattox Station, and they start to rain shells down on the station and Custer's men, which draws Custer's cavalry towards Walker's guns. They have to go through a wooded area. It is a terrible place for fighting a Civil War battle because it is largely what they said was blackjack oak and scrub pine. And every time a brigade came up, Custer's men would make a charge through the woods and they'd come out into a field where there are about 30 Confederate artillery pieces in action and they'd be driven back into the woods. Sunsets about 6.15. 
Uh, so much of this fighting takes place after dark. Every time a new brigade of Custer's division comes up, he launches an assault. And about eight o'clock, he gets everyone together to make a final charge, and they overrun Reuben Lindsey Walker's artillery pieces and capture 25 cannon, about 1,000 men, and about 200 wagons. The Federal Cavalry continued east, and some of them charged into the village of Appomattox Courthouse, where they met Confederate infantry coming out of the Appomattox River. A little after nine at night, General Lee holds a war council. Uh, those in attendance are General Pete Longstreet, John Gordon, these are your two corps commanders, and Fitzhugh Lee, who commands the Confederate Cavalry. So he is General Robert E. Lee's nephew. And the consensus is that it could only be Federal Cavalry that got that far west of them and they can break their way out on the morning of April 9th. And that's what they're going to try and do. Around 7.45 a.m. on the morning of April 9th, 1865, Lee's men launch an attack to drive the Federal Cavalry from the ridge. And are very successful at first. They're doing what's called a left wheel to open the road. This way Gordon can protect the road and then Longstreet and the wagon trains can move behind them unmolested by the Federal troops. But little do the Confederates know that Federal infantry, those troops moving south of the Appomattox River, the Army of the James and Sheridan with the Cavalry, and the Fifth Corps covered over 30 miles on April 8th. When they hear the sh shooting start on the morning of April 9th, they double quick to the battlefield and arrive on the scene with Federal infantry to block the road. And apparently that was the signal for if Federal infantry appeared on the scene, General Lee was going to stop the fighting and surrender. So when that Federal infantry appears, there is some shooting, there's an engagement, men are killed and wounded. And one of those men is a how we got here rabbit hole. Get ready. General Fitzhugh Lee commands the cavalry, and he's apparently gotten permission from Uncle Robert the night before that if Robert's going to surrender, the cavalry could escape and join Joe Johnston's army in North Carolina. You have to understand, if they're going to surrender, they have no idea they're going to be allowed to keep their horses at this time. If they surrender and get sent to prison camp or whatever, these men will lose their horses, which would be kind of equivalent to you losing your car, your vehicle. So the Confederate cavalry gets ready to make that ride. Officer on Fitzhugh's staff, a Richmond boy named Charles Minigro. Charles Minigro Jr was the son of Charles Minigrode Sr., who at the time was the rector of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond. He had come over from Germany. He was a revolutionary over there. He comes to the United States in 1839. He uh, learns English within three months. He is given a professorship at William and Mary, where he teaches language, and he also supposedly brings the tradition of the Christmas tree to the United States. His son is 16-year-old Charles Minigaro, Jr. He's working in the armories when he runs into Fitzhugh Lee, who makes him a part of his staff, much to the chagrin of his parents, especially his mama. 
now he's a 16-year-old off riding with a cavalry. As he turns to ride away, a bullet strikes him and knocks him off of his horse, and he is lying on the ground. General Fitzhugh sends his surgeon over there, a man named A.C. Randolph, who looks over Charles Minigrode, determines he will not survive this wound, and pins a note to him to contact Minigrode's father in Richmond and ask whoever finds the body to let his father know where it's buried. And Fitzhugh Lee and the staff rides away with, quote, tears in their eyes and left Minigrode lying on the ground. So then Minigrode, dying on the ground, pulls out a piece of paper and writes a letter to his mother. It's what you would call a death letter. He says, my darling mother, I am dying, but I have fallen where I expected to fall. Our cause is defeated, but I do not live to see the end of it. I suffer agonies and wish to God I could die calmly. But in all things, I must see his will be done. My greatest regret in leaving this world is to leave you and the rest of the dear ones. The younger children will be more comforting to you than I have been, but none of them will love you more. And we have that letter on display at the National Park at Appomattox Courthouse. So that kind of gets you right in the heart, doesn't it? That's a pretty, pretty moving death letter. But you know what? He didn't die. He lived. (laughs) He lived. A federal surgeon found him on the battlefield and removed the bullet and saved his life. Minigrode ended up returning to Richmond and having numerous children. So there are plenty of descendants of Charles Minigrode today. Back to our main story. General Lee is desperately trying to escape Grant's army and realizing it's likely over. It's April 9th, 1865. General Gordon sends a message to General Lee saying, I have fought my corps to a frazzle. I cannot go forward unless I'm supported by General Longstreet. And this General Lee determines that he will go ahead and surrender his army because he can't send Longstreet, who's about four miles to the rear facing the Federal 2nd and 6th Corps under General Meade. They send a messenger to locate Grant, but Grant is no longer with Meade. He's in the middle of a 20-plus mile ride to get to the front of his lines. A messenger finally catches up with him around 11 that morning. When they read the letter from General Lee saying he wishes to surrender, they called for three cheers and they gave three cheers, but they said by the time it got to the third cheer, it turned to tears. General Grant was traveling with a large entourage. He had two cavalry regiments with him, his headquarters guard. So that's quite a few men, probably, you know, seven, eight hundred men with him. So you move much faster as an individual than in a large group. So he sends a message with Colonel Orville Babcock and an orderly William McKee Dunn to find General Lee and say, Grant will meet with General Lee and that General Lee should find a suitable place to meet. They ride out from Grant's group and they find General Lee down by the Appomattox River, east of the actual village, resting under an apple tree. 
We'll get back to this apple tree in just a little bit. It's the source of a major myth from Appomattox. And they give General Lee Grant's note. Lee sends Charles Marshall up into the village. He encounters a fellow named Wilmer McLean. Wilmer McLean is not native to Appomattox Courthouse. He's from Alexandria. He married a widower who lived out at Manassas, and their home was used as a headquarters for General Beauregard during the Battle of First Manassas. And a cannonball passed through the kitchen. The McLeans weren't there, but they say it spoiled General Beauregard's supper. <laughs> McLean eventually offers up his own home in the village of Appomattox Courthouse for the surrender meeting. General Robert E. Lee arrives around 1 p.m. Flanked by his bodyguards, he enters the house. Ulysses S. Grant arrives about 30 minutes later. He meets General Sheridan and General Ord on the ridge west of the village. Says, Sheridan, how are you doing today? And Sheridan says, first rate. He asks, where's Lee? And Sheridan says he's in that house waiting to surrender to you. And Grant says, come, let's go. As they reach the house, Grant dismounts and goes inside. He sees General Lee in the parlor. General Lee stands and the men shake hands. And they fall into conversation about the Mexican War. They had both served in the war and had previously met in Mexico. Lee acknowledged that he recalled meeting him, but he couldn't remember a feature of the occasion. This is understandable because Lee was the idol of the army. Everybody knew who Robert E. Lee was in the Mexican War, but hardly anybody could tell you who U.S. Grant was at that time. So it made a big impression on Grant. They, they were talking so comfortably that Lee asked for Grant to put his terms in writing. So Grant sits down, pulls out his manifold writer, and starts to write out the terms for General Lee, a draft of them. Grant, acting on orders from President Lincoln, is not going to subject the Confederate soldiers to prison camp. They'll be paroled and allowed to go home. He's even going to let them keep their pistols and personal baggage. When Lee is given the draft, he says this will have a very happy effect upon his army. He does inquire if the enlisted men would be allowed to keep their horses, and at first Grant says no. But he could see Lee was very anxious about this, and he reverses himself, and he says he didn't know that the Confederate soldiers owned their own horses because in the United States Army, men were given horses. He said he would allow the Confederate soldiers to keep their horses. Lee again said this will have a happy effect upon his army. Also, Lee told Grant he had about a thousand of Grant's men in prison and nothing to feed them. If you don't have anything to feed your prisoners, you probably don't have food for your own men either. So it's kind of a hint to Grant. Grant says he will send 25,000 rations over to feed Lee's army. Lee says this will have a, a happy effect upon his army. Grant gives a draft to General Lee. He makes a few small insertions and agrees to the terms. Now the draft has to be copied into ink. And this falls to a member of General Grant's staff, a Seneca Indian named Ely Parker. He was a Seneca Indian chief, and they'd become friends in Illinois in the summer of 1863 when he joined Grant's staff. 
He was said to have the best penmanship in the army, and he may have. The problem was he didn't have any ink to write with. Charles Marshall of Lee's staff stepped forward and presented a boxwood ink stand for Parker to use to write out the surrender terms. When it came turn for Marshall to write Lee's acceptance, Marshall obviously had ink, but he didn't have any paper with him. So the federal officers gave Marshall paper to write Lee's acceptance. Once those letters were finished, those letters were exchanged. There is not a signing of one document like we envision the end of World War II, where everyone's on Missouri and Tokyo Bay and stepping up and putting their signature on a piece of paper. These were two letters, one from Grant with the terms, one from Lee accepting those terms. They are exchanged, and that is how the surrender is effective. While the letters were being written, Grant introduces his staff to General Lee. Most of the time, it's said Lee just bowed to whoever he was being introduced to. However, he does have some conversation with a general on Grant's staff named Seth Williams, because Seth Williams was with Lee when he was superintendent at the U.S. Military Academy. Another officer that is in the room is Captain Robert Lincoln, who is the son of Abraham Lincoln of General Grant's staff. We don't know what this introduction meant to, to Lee or Lincoln, other than uh, he was there. But we do know what transpired between Ely Parker and General Lee. When Parker is introduced to Lee, Lee says, it's good to see one real American here. And Parker responded, General, we're all Americans. Even though they were on different sides, they were still Americans. But this surrender is going to bring the fighting to in Virginia, at least, to an end and um, be a step towards reuniting the country. The mutual respect shown between these two generals filled the room that day. Obviously, there is a difference in age. Lee is 58 at the time of the surrender. Grant is 42. But they do respect each other, not only at the time, but after the war as well, keeping up those terms that they agreed upon at the uh, surrender. The meeting lasted about an hour and a half, but this is the only account we have about what was said. The two shake hands once again. Lee goes out. He calls for his orderly, who brings Traveler over. He mounts Traveler. And as he's doing so, Grant and his staff come out. And as Lee rides away, Grant tips his hat. And General Lee responds with a tip of the hat, returning that formal salute. Lee's army is waiting at the Appomattox River Valley. He has about 30,000 men left. He started out from Petersburg and Richmond with about 60 to 65,000 men. He has lost half of his army. And that week, just in rough figures, that's probably about 10,000 men killed and wounded, 10,000 men captured, and about 10,000 men that saw the writing on the wall and left the army. When he reaches his men after crossing the Appomattox River, they begin to cheer him. And once they learn that they've been surrendered, those cheers turn to tears. But Lee tries to console his men. He says, go home and make as good citizens as you have soldiers, and you will do well and I'll always be proud of you. When Grant leaves the McLean house, he sets up his headquarter tent about a mile to the west. 
and his troops are firing rifles into the air and firing cannons in salute. He says, stop the firing. The rebels are our countrymen again. So you can see, even after this meeting, they go back to their men to try to impart what Lincoln wants, a peace and bringing these Southern soldiers back into the fold, back into the country once again. That night, Lee asked Lieutenant Colonel Charles Marshall to write a general order to his men, expressing his feelings toward them. On the morning of April 10th, Marshall had not done it. Lee directs him to get into a ambulance and come up with that farewell address. Marshall gets it done on the morning of the 10th. He presents it to General Lee. General Lee strikes out a paragraph that he thought might keep some bitterness alive, changes one or two words, and that is what's known as General Order Number 9. Probably the most recognized part of it is after four years of arduous service marked by unsurpassed courage and fortitude, the Army of Northern Virginia has been compelled to yield to overwhelming numbers and resources. He goes on to extol the bravery of the survivors and the uh, appreciation of their valor and devotion, and then he lets them know what the agreement is with the terms of surrender. He concludes with an increasing admiration of your constancy and devotion to your country and a grateful remembrance of your kind and generous considerations for myself. I bid you all an affectionate farewell. R.E. Lee, General. So this really hit home with the uh, men of the Army of Northern Virginia. It was copied by a headquarters clerk, Norman Bell, and sent out to each of the corps commanders and division commanders. It was posted throughout the camp and men wrote their own copies. Some of them took them to General Lee and General Lee would sign them. There are numerous copies of General Order Number 9 out there. It was treasured by the men, but interestingly enough, going through the papers of Union officers and soldiers, sometimes you will find General Order Number 9 in there. They copied it down as well. As with any great moment in history, there are stories born that day that spread into legend and never actually happened. Patrick Schroeder says there's one more rabbit hole we need to take, the very first myth of Appomattox that General Lee surrendered to General Grant under an apple tree. What happens is General Lee is sitting under this apple tree down by the Appomattox River waiting to hear from General Grant. And when Orville Babcock arrives with General Grant's message, he gives it to General Lee, who reads it and sends Marshall up into the village. The thing is, a good portion of the Confederate Army is lined up on the hills behind General Lee, and all they see is this Union officer talking to General Lee. Soon after this moment, they learn that Lee has surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia. So they mistakenly believe that that was Grant with Lee under the apple tree, and that's where the surrender took place. American soldiers have always loved to collect souvenirs, and Civil War soldiers were no different. Confederate soldiers went over and started chopping down that apple tree and uh, getting a piece of it. Before long, after the surrender meeting, the, the picket lines dissolved, so Union troops started to come into the Confederate camps. The first thing they encounter are all these Confederates chopping up an apple tree. 
and they say, hey, Johnny, why are you chopping up that apple tree? And they say, well, Yank, this is a tree where General Lee surrendered to General Grant. And you know what the Union soldiers say? I want a piece of that tree, too. They say by that night, there was nothing but a hole in the ground. The thing is, everybody going off with pieces of the apple tree are spreading that story that Lee surrendered to Grant under an apple tree. And it wasn't true, but a lot of people thought it was. And in fact, Confederate soldiers on the way home would stop at houses and say, you got food for a hungry Confederate soldier? I've got a piece of the apple tree for you if you do. They'd say, the apple tree, what's that? Say, oh, well, that's where General Lee surrendered to General Grant. A myth born on the day of the surrender that's still repeated to this day. I'd say maybe once or twice a year, a person will show up or contact us and let us know that they have a piece of the apple tree. And they may donate it to us or they may just show it to us. A worthless piece of history that's actually no longer meaningless. A priceless artifact depicting the value of a rumor. The surrender is carried out over the next several days. On the 10th, the Confederate cavalry surrenders. There's only about 1,600 left. Remember, many escaped to join Joe Johnston's army in North Carolina. On April 11th, the Confederate artillery surrenders. And on the 12th, the bulk of Lee's army would give up, mostly the infantry, but close to 23,000 men. On the federal side, General Joshua Chamberlain, who is filling in for Joseph Bartlett, 1st Division of the 5th Corps, he is going to receive the Confederates who come up and stack their arms on the Richmond Lynchburg Stage Road in the village of Appomattox Courthouse at the head of the Confederate column. John Gordon is going to lead the Confederates up. Chamberlain has his men waiting at attention when Gordon approaches. Chamberlain orders his men to shoulder arms. This is a marching salute. Gordon turns to his men, orders his men to shoulder arms. So in fact, they, they pass each other with what's called a soldier salutation, a marching salute. This is a very emotional ceremony because the Confederates do have to turn over their weapons, their military equipment that's been issued to them, and their flags that they have carried for the four years. So it's a very emotional and touching ceremony. By April 13, 1865, most Confederate soldiers received their paroles and started home. By the 17th, the Federal soldiers have marched away. One thing that the Federal soldiers that were still at Appomattox that stayed there till the end, the uh, 24th Corps, they received a telegraph message that Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated. So can you imagine being at Appomattox, this is your triumphant victory, and then you learn that your president has been assassinated. Once the federal soldiers learned that Lincoln has been assassinated, they didn't want to see any of the Confederate soldiers anymore. That really turned them against them again. Bad news for soldiers and people on both sides, really. One federal soldier wrote that if the assassination had taken place before the surrender, there would not have been a surrender, only blood. April 9th, 1865. Robert E. Lee waits for word from Ulysses S. Grant under an apple tree. 
They eventually meet face to face for an hour and a half in a small house to hash out the details of surrender. Lee gives up his Army of Northern Virginia, now a moment marked in history as the symbol of the ending Civil War. A day, two divided sides once again found common ground, a path forward to the America we know today. Indian Princess, Mother of America, Disney Princess. The beautiful, playful, beguiling Native American young woman, Pocahontas, is a real person. Despite the myth she's become in our nation's history. As I was putting it together, I was thinking, you know, what would she think of this? Would she recognize herself in what we're saying? And I just, I don't know. And I don't know that we'll ever know. It's one of those mysteries. We don't have any writings from Pocahontas. Not a single thought exists from her mind, her life. Only the accounts of English men to tell us what they thought she was like. You definitely have to read between the lines of history to get at women. They're hidden there. Sometimes you can tease them out through court records or something like that. To take us on this journey to sift through the accounts of this now legendary figure in American history, we enlisted the help of Bly Straub. You met Bly back in season five, talking about a shipwreck. I'm senior curator for the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation and specifically for the Jamestown Settlement Museum. We so enjoyed you last time talking about the crazy shipwreck to Bermuda. We hope you enjoyed me on the podcast. I thought you did a great job with that story. I love the special sounds and everything. It really brought it all together. <laughs> Our jumping off point this episode is April 5th, 1614 the day Pocahontas, daughter of the powerful Chief Powhatan, marries English tobacco planter John Rolfe in Jamestown. When I chose to include this date and history in this episode, I noticed in many of the quick write-ups, Pocahontas was referred to as Princess Pocahontas. Bly instantly told me she was not a princess. And I wondered, was she just Disney-fied, or did that idea start much earlier? Certainly, Disney reinforced that by making her a princess, which is great. I mean, I thought it was wonderful that a woman of color was, you know, they made a production about, and a lot of young girls could identify with her, which is cool. We all wanted to be Pocahontas when we were younger. But it started much earlier. It started with the, the first colonists, they would refer to her as princess. And in fact, at one point, they were actually accusing John Smith of trying to marry her so he could become king of the country, which would have been impossible. It's a matrilineal society, so that's one thing. So to explain that, it means that lineage goes through the female line. So if Powhatan should die, it would not go to one of his children, go through his mother's line to his brother. 
And she was just one of many, many children that he had with many, many wives. He had at least 12 wives still living with him uh, where were Comico when the English arrived. That was part of the culture. In order to build his society, he would marry a woman from a leader in one of his other tribal units and establish a bond that way. Once she had a child, she could go back with the child to her home until the child was old enough. And then the child comes back to Palatin to live with him. This was a way to just establish relationships throughout his vast uh, territory because it reached from like the Potomac River down to Virginia Beach. Senecomico is what it was called. So the princess title started with the colonists because they were calling Powhatan a king. So his children would be princes and princesses, right? But only in our way of thinking. They really weren't given any special deference or anything. It just persisted. Pocahontas is actually known by several other names. A lot of people don't know that. She was born with the name Amanute. She had the secret name of Matoka, and that was revealed upon her baptism. She told them that that was her, her personal secret name that was not told. Pocahontas was really sort of a nickname. Children were given nicknames based on their personalities as they were growing up. So that was probably something that Powhatan had given to her. It means a little rascal is like, I kind of see it, you know, just someone with a lot of energy and it seems to suit her. Before we get to how she meets and marries John Rolfe, we must go back to the first accounts we have of her. The first Englishman she meets is John Smith. And that's because he's taken captive um, in December of 1607 and taken to Werewakamako, where she lives with her father. We've featured the gregarious, boisterous, embellishing John Smith many times on this podcast. How old Pocahontas is when Smith first comes into contact with her is up for debate. In various writings, he says she's 9, 10, 11 years old. But Bly says most historians think she was born in 1595, making her 10 or 11 at the time. That's where that whole story of John Smith supposedly takes place about Pocahontas saving him from being executed by her father's commands. It goes something like this. Two rocks were pulled out and his head was laid upon them and then warriors were instructed to bash in his skull, and she flung herself upon him, saving him from death. Well, people have questioned that because he didn't mention that story until long after both Pocahontas and Powhatan were dead. He didn't mention it in his earlier writings when they were both alive. It's, it sort of comes out. He has this sort of, if you read his other writings about his travels through Europe, Turkey, and so forth, he's always saved by some beautiful woman from some terrible fate. <laughs> it happened in France, it happened in Turkey, you know. So he has this sort of, um, you know, a pattern. <laughs> he has an ego. <laughs> he does. But on the other hand, what he describes does fit with what was known 
as an adoption ceremony that was practiced by the Algonquin people, Algonquin-speaking people. You would basically be threatened with death, and then you'd be incorporated into that tribal group. And after it happened, John Smith actually says, Powhatan calls him son and calls him a Werewance. A Werewance is a respected leader of a tribal group. And so we know that both groups, the English and the Powhatan, were trying to incorporate each other. It was like a little dance that they were doing. The English wanted to incorporate the Indians to bring them food, perhaps labor for them in the fields, you know, which never worked. And vice versa, Powhatan wanted to incorporate the English to help him fight his enemies because they came with weapons. And they also had all these trade goods that Powhatan wanted. So there was a lot of that negotiation sort of thing going on early on. Pocahontas continues to make her presence known to James Fort, a move likely supported by her father. There's a contingent of warriors that Powhatan sends out to feed the colonists because he knows they're starving. She arrives with them, and the idea, anthropologists kind of think, this was done to show Powhatan's goodwill, you know, that here's this non-threatening person. And she probably was, well, according to what John Smith says, she was very attractive. And she had a lot of spunk. We know that from other descriptions of her coming to the fort and cartwheeling through the fort with all the boys. She seemed to have a very big personality. Which may be exactly why Chief Powhatan chose for her to represent his people. She was non-threatening. She was a, a child, basically, you know, young. On the verge of womanhood, though, because at around 12, 13, they got married. So she was on the verge of womanhood, but still, still young. There are many stories passed down from the English about her. For instance, it's claimed that one night as the colonists were leaving with corn they got from Chief Powhatan, Pocahontas shows up to warn them of danger. They're waiting for the tide to change so they can come back to Jamestown. It's night and all of a sudden Pocahontas appears and warns the group that Powhatan is planning to kill them. So you better leave now. And uh, as the story goes, John Smith offered her something, some trade goods or something. And she said, oh, no, no, I can't be seen with this. Otherwise, he will know, my father will know that I've warned you. And she's crying and she runs off. If it's true, you know, it's sort of playing into this whole story of her being very sympathetic to the English and wanting to be part of them and their culture, or at least curious about them. And as you can imagine, the Native American perspective of Pocahontas is very different than the accounts passed down from the English settlers. It hasn't been until really recent days that we've listened to the non-mainstream stories and they do have varying views about her as well. The Pocahontas we know is totally not one that they would recognize. It's one that has been made into this mythical person, Mother Pocahontas. In the 19th century, they started saying, well, George Washington is our father and Pocahontas is our mother. It's just totally not how they would perceive this young Indian woman. But she was placed in pretty unusual circumstances throughout her short life. She was kidnapped, and a lot of people don't know that. 
she was forcibly captured by the English and brought back to Jamestown. She was up on the Potomac River with the Potawatomi trading, you know, with permission of her father. Her father had asked her to do that. And Argyll, Samuel Argyll, got wind of that. And he thought, oh, great, we can kidnap her, hold her for ransom, and get back the English runaways. There have been a lot of Englishmen who'd run away to the Indians or had been captured by the Indians. We can get them back. We can get the weapons that have been stolen back. We can get some corn. You know, we just negotiate with, with Powhatan. This is his prized child, right? Which is also likely not true. Quick side note here. Six years after Pocahontas was born, one of Powhatan's wives gave birth to a girl, and she was described as his darling child. Perspective, right? Would you continually put your darling child in harm's way? And then the thing was that once she was captured by the English and they tried to negotiate, Powhatan didn't respond for months. Then he sent back some of the Englishmen and some of the weapons that were broken guns. <laughs> they weren't even serviceable. Then the English weren't happy and they said, no, we want more. This went on for months and months. It took about a year. And it seemed as though Pocahontas was getting fed up. Seems like she was because she did have a chance to visit her people, although she didn't see her father. She saw her brothers. And her brothers came to check on her to see if she was okay. And she said, yes, I am. And it's at that point that she reveals she has fallen in love with John Rolfe. At least this is what the English are saying. And this is where two different accounts show the difference in points of view. There's supposedly a story from the oral history of the native tribes that she was raped. Oral history does not survive intact for 400 years. It just doesn't. So that's somebody's theory, but most don't sort of believe that. But what we would believe is that this is something expected of her as a Powhatan woman. Women in the culture, if they're taken as a captive in war, they become part of that new family. They accept their lot. In a way, that's what she's done. You know, she is making alliances, creating peace for her people by joining this warring group. And indeed, it worked. You know, there was peace, finally. There had been war, you know, until the marriage of 1614, and it lasted several years then. So let's talk about what we know of the marriage itself. Again, we only have the accounts of English men. And we actually reenacted it on the 400th anniversary, so in 2014. Because at that point, we had found the 1608 church, which is probably the church where she got married in 1614. It was still standing then. And we found the area that was the, the chancel because there were four interments there. So we knew where she, she and John Rolfe would have stood. So what we did was erect a platform over that area to save the archaeological materials. And we know from the records that there were officiants from both the Church of England, the Ch English Church, and also an Indian officiant who did the native ceremony of wrapping beads around both of their wrists. And that's described in the records. Chief Powhatan approved of the marriage. Her father definitely approved because he sent his brother, Pocahontas' uncle, to the ceremony. 
to represent him. He refused to come. In fact, he never set foot in, in James Fort. He had refused. And also, Pocahontas's two brothers came. They were there representing him. It's also written in English records that she changed her name to Rebecca after the ceremony. Rebecca was probably chosen for her by the Reverend Whitaker, who was teaching her the catechism. And the name had biblical significance because Rebecca was the mother of two warring sons who you know, were heading up to two different nations. So it's sort of like bringing the warring factions together. And it's this moment in history that becomes so romanticized that she would change sides, become a colonist, helping to birth this country. She was totally romanticized, especially during civil, our Civil War, you know, when our nation split apart. It's kind of ironic to me that at the same time the United States was displacing Native Americans out west and sort of pushing them all onto reservations, she was idolized, you know, and she was, she was made into this icon of what was good about America. You know, here she accepted English ways or Anglo ways and she became baptized and she accepted our religion. And so that is what is good about our country. You know, that is sort of part of our creation myth that there was nothing wrong with what we did. It was good that we brought her out of her innocence. In late 19th century, early 20th century, lots and lots of companies used her as an image. I can actually remember back in the 50s watching this cartoon of Pocahontas and it had to do with a cleansing product and she was scrubbing a pan in the kitchen. There were teepees outside and John Smith was tied to a stake and he was about to be killed. Because of this great cleansing product she was using, she could finish quickly and get out and save him. <laughs> so how ridiculous is that, you know? Her image was used on tobacco tins, tobacco oranges, I mean, everything you can imagine, because she was seen as perfect. What it represented all that was good about what we had done in America. Pocahontas was married to John Rolfe for three years. They had one child, a son. We don't have her diaries or words. We don't know if she loved her husband and her marriage. Other people in the colony, other men in the colony, had written how well she behaved herself, carried herself as the wife of John Rolfe. So it sounds like she kind of slipped very nicely into her new role. She did get furious with John Smith, though. <laughs> She kind of showed her spunk when she finally went to England. And the whole reason Pocahontas was in England was to try to raise money for the Virginia Company because they were suffering. They lost a lot of money and they, they weren't making money. And so it was sort of like a horse and pony show. You know, it was like Pocahontas and John Rolfe and the, her child, who she was probably still breastfeeding, and a contingent of about 10 other Powhatan people who came to, to England. It was on that fateful trip in 1617 when she meets John Smith one last time. It's the first time they've seen each other since he left the colony in 1609. And she had been told he died. She thought he was dead. And uh, when she first saw him, she just, she lost it. She just could not 
say anything. And he had been bragging about how well she spoke English. And he was totally embarrassed in front of this group of people who left the room. So the two of them were left alone. She said, they told me you were dead. Why didn't you contact me? You know, you didn't come and see me once you knew I was in England. You know, I thought we were family. She called him father and he got mad at that. And <laughs> definitely seems to be a disconnect about understanding the culture and what was expected. The English were taking it very lightly for their own gain. Pocahontas would not survive this trip. She died in England at 21 years old. People think it was probably something like consumption or pneumonia. London was so polluted at that time. It's just an environment she would not have been accustomed to. They placed her in a inn called the Belle Sauvage, the beautiful savage, which is sort of strange. But it was in a really bad part of town. I mean, it, even though they were, the Virginia Company was supporting her with a fairly decent daily rate, it was a you know terrible sort of situation. So John Rolfe actually had her moved to the place where she met John Smith, sort of out of town, to a healthier environment. But I guess by that time, it was too late. And she was already ill. She was aboard ship, apparently, sailing down the River Thames, and they had reached this part of land called Graves End. She died, and so they took her off the ship and buried her in a church in Graves End, where she was buried in the chancel. So very uh, elevated spot. She was considered high enough status to be placed in the chancel of the church. And there's a plaque there to her. Of course, they got the plaque wrong. They called her the wife of Thomas Rolfe. Thomas was her son. So the church burned in the early 18th century. People who were buried underneath in the church church floors were moved out into the churchyard. In the 19th century, there were attempts to try to find her. And they did digging in the churchyard and they did find a crypt with individuals in it, but they were examined and none of them were determined to be Native American. They looked medieval. And so there's always been sort of this thought about trying to find her, bring her back. You know, my view, you bring her back where? Where does she belong? Does she belong at Jamestown? Does she belong at Werewakamaka? She's a woman of two worlds. You know, she was straddling both worlds. Bringing peace, uniting, fighting factions, and yet there's so much about her we really don't know. I love her story, and I, and I love that it can draw young people. They can identify with a young person who faces you know, this kind of major thing in their lives to become part of the, the American story. Because how many do? How many young children do we know about from history? Yeah, I love that. But on the other hand, I think we all have to be very careful. We make her what we want her to be. We just have to remember that, I think. We each sort of make her what we want her to be. We'll never really know who the real Pocahontas is. April 5th, 1614, the daughter of a powerful chief is married to an Englishman. Pocahontas is hailed for bringing peace and prosperity at the founding of America. 
Her story would later be used to perpetuate American myth-making. Pocahontas remains a mystery. The truth lies somewhere in between the oral histories and written English, somewhere amongst the shades of gray. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12, in Richmond, Virginia. It was written and edited by me, Rachel DePompa. Many thanks to my friends, digital director Kate Albright and executive producer Colton Weekly. Kate does our touch-up editing and makes sure it sounds good. And Colton finds every interview we do for these moments in history. Many thanks to our guest this week, Brittany Hutchinson, a curator with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Fly Straub, a senior curator at the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. And Patrick Schroeder, a historian at Appomattox Courthouse National Historical Park. Next week on Episode 6. I gather Thomas Jefferson was a little bit of a nerd in his youth. That word probably didn't exist then, but I think today he would be considered a bit of a, a geek, a nerd, a very studious fellow, but not unpopular with his friends. We will take you into the earliest memories of America's third president, how they shaped Thomas Jefferson. And we can only use our imaginations to wonder what they were like as little boys before one realized one could be the owner of the other. When does that realization start? That's next week on Episode 6. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. Look us up on Instagram, howwegothereva. We'll be back in your life next Monday.